Hello and welcome back to Film Feeder, the most fetch movie podcast out there. And as ever, I'm your film chef extraordinaire, Jack Martin, serving up some of the week's most delicious helpings of celluloid. And if you didn't pick up on the hint, this week is all about Mean Girls, both the timeless teen comedy and the brand new musical version that's coming to your screens this week, both of which I'll be discussing at length later on in the show. I'll also be putting a spotlight on all the other new releases coming out over the next seven days, from warm-hearted Oscar contenders to documentaries about some of the most notorious filmmakers out there, and later on I'll be sharing my overall opinions on just some of the tasty offerings coming your way this week. Now before we get started, make sure you're following this show on whatever platform you may be listening on, and our various social media channels including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube among others, the handles for which you can find in the episode description. And if you want to support the show going forward, then go to patreon.com filmfeeder and subscribe to one of our many tiers, where you can get exclusive rewards such as early access to podcast episodes, the ability to submit questions for upcoming episodes, and a whole lot more. Finally, I am very pleased to announce that the Film Feeder website, which you can find at www.filmfeeder.co.uk, has just gotten a much-needed new look and overall upgrade, which includes a better and more user-friendly interface, a stronger-designed homepage that lists all the latest written reviews and previews that I publish on there every week, and plenty of other eye-catching features like a new page especially for this podcast. In fact, you may even be listening to it right now while you're on there, in which case I hope you're enjoying the upgrade. I won't bore you with all the technical jargon or the incredibly lengthy process that it took to even bring this new design to the world, but I do want you all to know that this new website is something that I cannot personally take credit for. That goes to my very special cousin Kevin, who is extremely well versed in the complicated field of site design, having worked for top companies in the past like Timpson and Tesco, and who here has spent the majority of the last year building the framework of the new site pretty much from scratch all out of the pure kindness of his heart and soul, and also while he's living all the way on the other side of the world, in Brisbane, Australia, not to mention having to pass up with my intolerable perfectionism and numerous design suggestions that, in hindsight, might not have been especially practical. So Kevin, if you are indeed listening to this, I want you and the world to know that I am truly grateful for everything that you have done for the Film Feeder website. Your generosity and patience has turned it from a borderline unfunctional relic from 10 years ago into a much more modern and accessible online hub that is bound to catapult Film Feeder into a whole new era. And I seriously could not have done any of this without you. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, Kevin. And I'm wishing all the love to you and your wonderful family, who I know is just as proud and adoring of you as I am. Okay, no more sappiness. Let's get right into this week's movie menu. And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. As I said earlier, the big release leading the pack this week is Mean Girls, a sort of remake of the 2004 original, though this is more of an adaptation of the hit stage musical version of the film, which debuted on Broadway in 2018, and is currently on track to arrive in London's West End this June, at the Savoy Theatre with tickets now on sale for any theatre enthusiasts out there. But for this movie version, directed by Samantha Jane and Arturo Perez Jr., you've got an early chance to see an all-singing and all-dancing rendition of the story of new high school student Katie Heron, played here by Angori Rice, encountering the popular girl clique known as the Plastics, as led by Queen Bee Regina George, portrayed here by Renee Rapp, 
who reprises the role she originally played on Broadway. Things seem to go fine at first as Katie gradually becomes integrated within the plastics, but when Katie ends up falling for Regina's ex-boyfriend Aaron Samuels, played by Christopher Briney, all bets are off as Katie and her friends Janice and Damien, played respectively by Oli'i Cravalho and Jaquel Spivey, set out to teach Regina a valuable lesson about being, what else, a mean girl. As you can tell, it certainly follows the plot of the original fairly closely, but with many of the show-stopping numbers that earn the stage musical plenty of praise, as well as enough callbacks to the original movie to satisfy long-time fans, including the reappearance of original cast members Tim Meadows, back in his role as Principal Duvall, and most notably Tina Fey, the writer of both the original film and the stage musical, who also reprises her role as math teacher Miss Norbury. So whether you know the original Mean Girls film off by heart, or even if you've never seen it before, this is a musical delight that should get your feet tapping along when it arrives in cinemas on Wednesday the 17th of January. And stick around later on, because I'll be taking a look back at the movie that started it all. On to the other cinema releases coming out this week, and it's quite a solid selection, starting with The Holdovers. This is the latest film from director Alexander Payne, who's known for Sideways, The Descendants, Nebraska, Election, and more, and it's the tale of an unusual Christmas break at the prestigious Barton Academy in 1970, where deeply unpopular teacher Mr. Hunnam, played by Paul Giamatti, who previously worked with Payne on Sideways, is charged with looking after the few students who aren't able to go home for the holidays, one of them being Angus Tully, played by New Dominic Sessa, who is quite angry with his predicament having been abandoned by his mother at the last minute, which leads to an uneven dynamic between him and Mr. Hunnam, as well as school cafeteria head Mary Lamb, played by Divine Joy Randolph, who's grieving the loss of her son in the Vietnam War. Having become quite a favourite among critics and festival audiences, this one is shaping up to not just be a serious Oscar contender, especially for lead actors Giamatti and Randolph, the latter having swept most of the awards circuit thus far for her indomitable supporting turn, but also a possible new Christmas classic, which makes it all the weirder that it's coming to your screen several weeks after the 25th of December. I'll hold off on giving more details about it for now, because I've got a review coming up for it later, but I'll just say that this is one you won't want to avoid. Once again, that's The Holdovers, which comes to cinemas on Friday the 19th. Next is a slightly less warm-hearted affair, but certainly a much wetter one. It's The End We Start From, the environmental disaster film from debut director Mahalia Bello, which is adapted from the novel of the same name by Megan Hunter, by screenwriter Alice Birch, who previously wrote Lady Macbeth and The Wonder. Jodie Comer stars as a heavily pregnant young woman who gives birth right as London succumbs to mass flooding, and along with her newborn son and the father, who's Joel Fry, she heads to drier pastures up north, where she has a number of distressing and sometimes disturbing encounters with fellow survivors, and eventually resolves to find her way back home to give her son a reasonable head start in life. Again, I don't want to say too much about it here, as I'm saving it for my review later on, but this is another one to keep an eye out for when it also comes to cinemas on the 19th of January. Now on to more peculiar fare with The Civil Dead, an unusual dark comedy from director and co-writer Clay Tatum, who also stars in the movie as a lonely man who is encouraged to go out and be more social, and so happens to come across his old friend Wit, played by Whitmer Thomas, the film's other co-writer. But their reunion takes a nosedive when Wit reveals an alarming secret, which is that he's actually a ghost, and that only Clay can see and hear him. It's certainly having fun with plenty of supernatural tropes, but there's also a nice heartfelt centre to it that is apparent in the on-screen chemistry between the two lead actors, including Tatum, who shot the film during the pandemic on a shoestring budget of $30,000, much of which was apparently funded by one of his old college friends, 
Lynch, which just goes to show the power of friendship. And you can see the results for yourself when The Civil Dead comes to select cinemas and also to various digital platforms on the 19th. The last of this week's cinema releases is Werner Herzog, Radical Dreamer, a commemorative new documentary released through the BFI, the British Film Institute, which is putting on a major new season at their main hub on London's South Bank, where you can catch screenings of the many films among the legendarily unconventional German filmmakers' back catalogue, such as Akiare, The Wrath of God, Wojciech, and Grizzly Man, among several others. And part of that season includes a theatrical release for director Thomas von Steinecker's all-new celebration of the eccentric figure, which is showing in cinemas across the country, including the BFI South Bank, from Friday the 19th of January. There's only a couple of big releases coming to streaming this week, most notably Netflix's new dystopian thriller The Kitchen, which marks the directorial debut of Oscar-winning actor Daniel Kaluuya, who co-directs the film with Kibwe Tavares, and also co-wrote the screenplay with Joe Murtar. The film is set in a futuristic London where social housing has been all but completely eradicated, with only the multicultural community known as The Kitchen left standing, the residents of which refuse to leave despite the enormous pressure put on them by government forces. Meanwhile, there's funeral home worker Izzy, played by Kane Robinson, who takes Jedediah Bannerman as young teen Benji under his wing as they navigate the compressed environment they both live in. Once again, I'll refrain from saying too much as I'm saving it for the review later on, but it's a powerful and visually impressive filmmaking debut for Kaluuya, which arrives on the streamer this Friday. And over on Prime Video is the long-awaited UK release of The Marsh King's Daughter, which is directed by Neil Berger and stars Daisy Ridley as a young woman who was forced to confront her father Ben Mendelssohn, who years prior held her and her mother captive and raised them in a hidden cabin within the woods, and has now escaped from prison and come after her own family. There's a lot of suspense and thrills to get out of this one, and it's a solid effort by Daisy Ridley to do something a bit different from the stuff she's best known for in the Star Wars universe. So once more, you can now check out The Marsh King's Daughter, only on Prime Video in the UK. Finally, the big re-release of the week takes us back to the crazy world of Werner Herzog, as his film The Enigma of Caspar Hauser is getting a major re-release, in part to celebrate its 50th anniversary, and also to promote the BFI's new season of Herzog classics. This one in particular is the unusual but true tale set in 19th century Nuremberg, where the young man of the title gains attention for having spent the first 17 years of his life held captive in a dungeon, which has left him unable to speak or walk, and is subsequently weaved into society with with mixed results to say the least. Herzog's film comes with a lot of fascinating trivia, including the fact that the filmmaker used the actual letters of the real Caspar Hauser to convey an accurate portrayal of the historical figure, while actor Bruno Schleinstein, credited only as Bruno S, was hired despite having no previous acting experience, and displayed a number of strange behavioural habits on set that constantly drew parallels to the character he was playing. But nonetheless, the film scored plenty of approval upon its debut in 1974, with it going on to win the Grand Prix Award at that year's Cannes Film Festival, and was even submitted as West Germany's entry for that year's Foreign Language Film Oscar, though in the end it didn't end up being nominated. So if ever you've wanted to immerse yourself into all things Werner Herzog, The Enigma of Caspar Hauser is a formidable place to start, and you can check it out on the big screen in select locations from Friday the 19th of January. And that's it for this week's movie menu. Hopefully it's given you a bit of a taste for what's coming your way to screens, both big and small, and that you're inspired to go out and spoil your taste buds with all of these delicious new releases. So it's time to wear your finest pink outfit or snazziest vest with the nipples cut off, as we're now going back to 2004 for a nostalgic look at the original teen classic Mean Girls, which makes up this episode's feature presentation.
20 years ago, audiences were introduced to a number of comedies that have since become household names and cult classics, like Anchorman, Dodgeball, Shaun of the Dead, Napoleon Dynamite, Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. Hell, the highest grossing film of that year, with 900 million in the worldwide bank, was a comedy. That being Shrek 2, which is widely regarded as one of the funniest animated films of the 21st century. But as great as some of those 2004 comedies were, few of them truly defined a generation quite like Mean Girls. The teen comedy from director Mark Waters and writer Tina Fey, then a regular performer and writer on Saturday Night Live. And with the brand new musical version about to hit our screens, now's as good a time as any to look back on this film and see exactly how it has endured over the past two decades, as well as if it's still as fresh and relevant today as it was back then, and also my own experiences with the film and how it's helped me over my own teenage years. For anyone not too familiar with the story, or somehow didn't hear me recap it when I talked about the new version earlier, it revolves around Katie Heron, played by Lindsay Lohan, who's a new student at North Shore High School after being homeschooled while her parents were living abroad in Africa, but she initially struggles to fit in with her peers until she encounters the exclusive clique known as the Plastics, which is comprised of Lacey Chabert's rich girl Gretchen Wieners, dim-witted Karen Smith, which was Amanda Seyfried's very first feature role, and of course their ruthless leader Regina George which proved to be one hell of a breakout role for Rachel McAdams, whose only other major role before this film was starring opposite Rob Schneider in The Hot Chick, so this was undoubtedly a step up for her at the time. Katie at first seems to get on well with Regina and her lackeys, but things inevitably get complicated when she falls for Regina's ex Aaron Samuels, who's Jonathan Bennett, and soon she and fellow students Janice, played by then unknown Lizzie Kaplan, and Daniel Franzesi's too gay to function Damien, set out to try and ruin Regina's reputation and social standing not just within the plastics but the school as a whole. The big question to start off with is, why has Mean Girls endured over the last two decades, and continues to endure to this day? Sure, it received strong critical appraisal at the time of its release, and ended up grossing several times its $18 million budget at the worldwide box office. But most movies are successful with critics and audiences, and still don't leave as much of an impact on popular culture as this film has. So what was in this film that has made it such a revered modern teen classic? I think a good place to start is with Tina Fey's script, which was very loosely inspired by the non-fiction book Queen Bees and Wannabes by Rosalind Wiseman, as well as her own high school experiences that she used to create the original narrative. And for my money, it's a very well-written screenplay, with not just oodles of quotable lines and memorable characters, many of which are extremely funny, but also a satirical edge that pokes fun at how vicious and unforgiving somewhere like high school can be, and it does so with a wicked sense of humour that doesn't let up or hold back with how wild and chaotic it can get. And with some of its more out there gags, you can also see the seeds being planted for some of Faye's later works like 30 Rock and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, both of which similarly rely on a very heightened style of comedy that Mean Girls arguably paved the way for, at least in establishing Faye's signature brand of comedy. Then of course there's the lines themselves, many of which you're probably already reciting in your head, with so many to choose from that it's hard to pick just a couple in terms of standouts. And again, Faye's script is smart in how it naturally drops banger after banger without going back to any of them in an easy ploy for guaranteed laughs. Much like how Gretchen Wieners repeatedly tries to force a catchphrase like fetch, even when nobody else is adopting the meaningless phrase, instead the film just lets its lines breathe and come back if and when required, which in a way helps them stay longer in the memory bank than if they were just repeated over and over again. 
I think it also helps that they've got some great actors to deliver many of these lines, including Lindsay Lohan, who has certainly been a constant media target over the years, and has quite sadly become more of a punchline than anything else, but she genuinely gives a really strong lead performance in this movie, one where she gets to be funny and sweet without it necessarily feeling like an act. And I think the fact that she is really good in this movie tends to get lost amidst all the tabloid hysteria surrounding her, because she is certainly a talented performer who seems to have been gravely mismanaged in all aspects of her life and career, and it's sad to see all of that happen to someone who, at the end of the day, does have a considerable screen presence, as proven by her turn in this film. The MVP of the cast, though, has been, and always will be, Rachel McAdams, who from the moment she whips across a fake toothy smile with a passive-aggressive tone of voice, makes the character of Regina George instantly legendary. Because this is a character who is by every definition awful, from the way she spouts horrible insults to her fellow students and even her closest plastics, to how she easily manipulates anyone around her into giving her exactly what she wants, no matter what the personal cost. But McAdams, with an incredibly commanding performance, turns this nightmarish character into a person who kind of knows she's a nightmare, but doesn't care because it gives her an insane amount of power over everyone, and that's all she considers to be important in life, so she just goes for it without a second thought as to how it makes the other person feel. It's well written, well acted, and gets plenty of earned laughs, as well as an endless assortment of memorable quotes to choose from, but when it ultimately comes to why it's still such a classic after 20 years, to where it's since spawned both a stage musical and now a movie based on said stage musical, I believe it's because, at the end of the day, whether you're a teenager or an adult, it's a film that eerily captures almost exactly how catty high school society can be, and thus can seem instantly relatable to just about anyone who has gone through it themselves, including, funnily enough, myself. When this movie came out, I was just starting secondary school, which for non-UK listeners is more or less our equivalent to junior and senior high school, and I was a bit of an outsider, not too unlike Katie or her allies Janice and Damien, but I remember noticing how a lot of other new students were banding together, forming all these specialist friend groups based on their shared likes that were, at that age, their entire personality, or just as a means of showing off a higher status. Like you'd have the kids who are into bands like My Chemical Romance and Paramore, or the more introverted crowd who like staying indoors and playing chess during lunch break and so on and so forth. Which sounds an awful lot like the other various cliques in Mean Girls, doesn't it? Of course, having a diagnosis of Asperger's Syndrome, it wasn't exactly easy for me to even make a whole lot of friends. In fact, I recall my first couple of years at secondary school being rather challenging on my emotional behaviour, as I acted out quite a lot and was placed in all-day detention a number of times. But that didn't necessarily stop me from attempting to fit in with my more quote-unquote normal peers, and the friends I did end up making were, again, not dissimilar to the bond that KD develops with Janice and Damien. Even though there were times, just like Lindsay Lohan's character, I did find myself a bit more drawn to Regina George type figures, which were mainly the sportier and larrier group of guys who thought themselves to be much tougher than they actually were. But luckily, as they did with Regina George, their true colours began to show very quickly, and I stayed as far away from that aggressive crowd as I could. The point that I suppose I'm trying to make here is that Mean Girls has a way of tapping into that strange adolescent psychology that we all have, from a feeling of being an outsider within a hierarchical system, to being attracted to a seemingly more glamorous school social status, much of which I'm assuming is covered in that non-fiction book that Tina Fey used as the basis for her script, which she then transformed into a heightened comedy that's no less able to directly show how our teen minds work, albeit in extreme situations such as the ones shown here. 
in that regard, even though it was made and released in the early 2000s, Mean Girls is rather timeless, as the years and the technology and even some of the terminology may have changed, but teen mentality has remained exactly how it was, with that natural shift towards forming school hierarchies and developing notoriety via social statuses still being practiced by a lot of today's teens, the only difference being that social media plays a far bigger role now in spreading that notoriety, with modern teen issues like cyberbullying and mental health being at the forefront of the conversation surrounding our adolescent youth. That alone gives this brand new 2024 version plenty of reasons to exist, aside from adapting the popular Broadway musical and maybe also capitalising on the popularity of the original, because there are an interesting array of topics regarding current teen subjects that can absolutely be explored within this comedic and now musical study of adolescent power dynamics, which can potentially update the story for newer viewers while still keeping its central messages intact for fans of the original. And while I don't know for a fact if this new movie does that, as I have yet to see it as of this episode, I would be shocked if this new movie somehow managed to turn a blind eye to all these current issues that teenagers face today. Especially with a character like Regina George, whose life mission is to find the weakest in her society and crush them like utter bugs. I very much look forward to seeing how they manage to pull that off in this new version, but for now I am perfectly comfortable with just having the original 2004 film in my life, for it is a funny, smart, and wildly relevant slice of popular culture that is, to use that forced catchphrase, so fetch. So that was my look back on the original Mean Girls. I hope you enjoyed listening to my eloquent ramblings. And if you're inspired to rewatch the film before the new version comes out, or even if you're just up for a much needed revisit, you can currently stream it on Paramount Plus, or you can digitally rent or buy it on various online stores. And for physical media collectors, I am almost certain you can find a copy lurking somewhere within entertainment stores like HMV or Barnes and Noble. Either way, you can absolutely find and own your own copy of Mean Girls somewhere in the world. Now let's unwind from all the 2004 nostalgia and focus on some of the current movies about to hit your screens in our ever-detailed review section. So, the first review I have for you this week is The Holdovers, the new film by Alexander Payne that's releasing in cinemas this week, but I caught a much earlier showing of the film at the BFI London Film Festival last October, and honestly, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. Quick recap on the story, it's set over the Christmas period of 1970, when Paul Giamatti's unpopular teacher Mr. Hunnam is charged with looking after the students of a prestigious boarding school who have nowhere to go over the break. So it's largely him and Dominic Sessa's unruly student Angus Tully, and also Divine Joy Randolph's grieving mother and cafeteria head Mary, who are all left to form an unlikely family unit during the Christmas break. So the last time that Alexander Payne made a movie, it was Downsizing in 2017, and anyone who's had the misfortune of seeing that rather misguided and even slightly racist sci-fi satire will know that it did not go down very well at all, managing only a 47% critics rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and an even worse 25% score among audiences. And that's without mentioning its poor box office performance of $55 million worldwide against a budget of somewhere between 60 to 75 million. All of which must have been a brutal blow for Payne at the time, for his clear ambition had backfired immensely with viewers everywhere. It gives me great pleasure then to say that The Holdovers is very much a return to form in the strongest sense possible, as it is a delightful warm hug of a film that is, in many ways, considerably more ambitious than Downsizing ever managed to be. 
Directing from a script by David Hemmingson, which itself is filled with plenty of wit and a tremendous amount of humanity, Payne's most notable aesthetic choice is to give his film the look and feel of a lost classic from the 1970s, complete with a slightly grainy 35mm film filter, era-appropriate studio logos, and even an old rating card from the MPAA all coming within seconds of the film starting. The Holdovers does not waste time in establishing its old-school vibes, while also doing everything within its power to not come across as overly nostalgic, for instead, Payne uses the retro style to gently ease the audience into this dreary world, where snow blankets just about everything as far as the eye can see, and the constantly overcast sky creates a gloomy atmosphere that the few remaining Christmas decorations are able to liven up, with even the tree being rehomed after it has served its usefulness during term time. It's a mercilessly old-fashioned atmosphere enlivened by an appropriately old-fashioned approach, and it is used to pleasing effect that should capture the attention of any fans of that classic period of cinema. But crucially, The Holdovers is not defined by its handsome exterior, and much more so by the beating heart inside of it, as Payne's direction and Hemmingson's script both equally adore these central characters, giving them plenty of opportunities to be entertaining with their overt and occasionally obnoxious personalities, but also enough moments to feel like well-rounded and believable people in their own right. Take Paul Giamatti's curmudgeon teacher Hunnam, for example. With his shrubby appearance, Scrooge-like disdain for his entitled students and fellow teachers, and a wonky eye that gives him the nickname Mr. Walleye among the faculty, he could so easily have been a mere caricature that the director and writer would routinely make the butt of every joke, or have him be such a stick in the mud that he wouldn't be able to function properly within society. But not so much in the actual film, for while he is certainly uptight and a stickler for the rules, he is still made incredibly likeable because the writing gives him genuine empathy, including when he sticks up for people after they are cruelly looked down upon, and he has some sweet moments as he tries to give his fellow outcasts a meaningful Christmas experience, all of which are delivered by Giamatti in one of the character actor's very best performances, where he gets to be both funny and endearing in one fell swoop. The same can be said about the other main characters, including troubled young Angus, whom Dominic Sessa is outstanding as, especially when you factor in how this is pretty much his acting debut, and the grieving Mary, whom Divine Joy Randolph excels at playing, in an understated performance that is one of the film's most invaluable assets. And again, Payne and Hemmingson give so much time and attention to these people that you really do identify with their struggles, and despite some of their more rambunctious traits, are perfectly pleasant to be around, even as the film starts to run out of steam towards the end of its 133 minute limit. These characters and their performance give the film a warm feeling that makes the familiar structure feel fresh once more, which is a quiet accomplishment for someone like Payne, who even before downsizing was starting to settle into somewhat safe territory, but with the holdovers he seems to have recaptured that ambitious spark which lit his earlier films. As it turned out he just needed a script that could complement his joyful ambition, and in David Hemmingson he's found someone who shares his unquestionable empathy and appetite for funny yet heartwarming stories of flawed people finding a connection with one another. Also, it's a really great Christmas movie, with plenty of festive imagery and a really cosy feeling while watching it, enough to where I can easily see it becoming a new festive classic, which again makes it so weird that the film is only coming out here in the UK weeks after Christmas itself. But I suppose we can all make up for that by making The Holdovers our go-to seasonal film next Christmas. But until then, I'm happily giving this rather wonderful film four stars, which means it's a dish that you'll be hungry for more of.
Now, if you want to listen to me talk in more detail about the holdovers, I strongly encourage you to go and check out the recent episode of Austin B Media, where I and host Austin Belzer discuss at length everything we both loved about this film. And you can check out that episode now on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and just about everywhere you get your podcasts. Once again, that's Austin B Media. It's a great show, and I'm happy to have been a small part of it. The next review I have for you is The End We Start From, which also played at last year's BFI London Film Festival, but I actually didn't get a chance to see it until a preview screening about a week before recording this episode. This is the film from first-time feature director Mahalia Bello, that stars Jodie Comer as a young mother who's forced to make her way through storm-battered Britain, and has a number of unnerving emotional counters along the way. So, it's a bit of a trope that British weather is often very, very wet. I and other Brits know this from having lived through many downpours, and the rest of the world knows it too, with numerous jokes hurled our way about how rubbish our constant rainy weather can be. Which makes it a British trope that isn't going away anytime soon, unless climate change gets even worse than it already is. Especially when films like The End We Start From go out of their way to show how crappy, and even borderline apocalyptic, our rain can truly get. However, in addition to showing the destructive capabilities of British weather, this is also a rather tender look at motherhood that has enough emotional moments to make up for its somewhat light narrative, which is certainly the kind of post-apocalyptic story you've seen before, where some big earth-shattering event disrupts society as we know it, while the nameless protagonist makes their way through a number of scenarios that show how primitive and desperate humanity can be. So the end we start from isn't hugely different in that regard, especially next to other post-apocalyptic dramas like The Road or How I Live Now that more or less hit on similar if not the same dramatic themes as this film does. And that can lead to a number of scenes feeling like they're simply going through a checklist of post-apocalyptic conventions, from military-run shelter facilities to secluded communes who reject the outside world, to brief encounters with other survivors that are struggling to emotionally grasp the weight of their predicaments. Not to mention, it's also one of those films where you can tell that the book it's adapted from does perhaps a better job of detailing the emotional complexity of its characters than the script does. Because while Alice Birch's screen adaptation boldly opts for a subtler approach, one that relies more on the emotions conveyed by the actors than actually showing what's happening, it ends up preventing much of a connection to the people we're meant to be following. Which is frustrating because there are some great performances in this movie, not least by Jodie Comer who has the monumental task of carrying the whole movie next to the infant child she spends most of her time with. And there's some strong supporting work by Joel Fry, Catherine Waterston as a mother that Coma befriends along the way, and even Benedict Cumberbatch who pops up for about 10 minutes as a fellow survivor. But the script unwittingly puts up a noticeable barrier around its characters, to where you don't know enough about them, not even their names, nor what they may be thinking or feeling in the moment, to truly emphasise with some of the traumas they end up going through, which even the actors sometimes struggle to completely get across within their limited screen time in this rather muted narrative. But the film works best when it is simply focused on the more intimate central story of this woman trying to protect her child in a new world of pure chaos. Because beyond the fact that Coma's performance really is quite stunning here, and easily ropes you into her journey even when the script struggles to convey it, there is a heartfelt simplicity to seeing this new mother do her best with her infant son amidst the taxing circumstances, something that Mahalia Bello's sturdy direction allows to take centre stage and dominate what little emotion you end up feeling for these reserved characters. While some gritty cinematography by Susie Lavelle makes effective use of some creative shots that neatly disguise the film's low-budgeted vision of societal collapse. 
So while it is a flawed piece of work, especially in the narrative department, the end we start from does ultimately have enough that's interesting about it to make for an emotional, if light, viewing experience, which won't change the post-apocalyptic movie rulebook by any stretch, but should at the very least breathe new life into jokes about the wet British weather, as if we haven't had enough of those already. So I'm giving it three stars, which equates to a decent stomach filler. And finally, I've got a first look at the week's big new Netflix release, The Kitchen, another BFI London Film Festival selection. In fact, this was the closing film gala that made its world premiere on the final night of the festival. And of course, I was fortunate enough to catch a screening of it and articulate my thoughts months in advance. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is a film set in a futuristic London where almost every borough has been gentrified, except for one area known as The Kitchen, where the predominantly working class civilians proudly call home. Despite the pressure to vacate the premises by the powers that be. And it's also where our main character Izzy, played by Kane Robinson, lives somewhat begrudgingly, and is eager to move out of the kitchen and into a fancier new flat as soon as he can. One that's closer to his work as an attendant at a funeral home, which specialises in turning people's ashes into compost to grow a memorial plant from. It's here that he encounters Benji, who's Jediah Bannerman, a young teen who is grieving the loss of his mother, whom Izzy happened to know briefly, and he offers to take the lost lad under his wing and become a de facto father figure, as both of them get sucked into the criminal underworld of the kitchen, and the brutal law enforcement that regularly shows up to beat the residents into submission. So The Kitchen is the directorial debut of both Kibwe Tavares and, most significantly, Daniel Kaluuya, who before he broke out big time with films like Get Out and his Oscar-winning turn in Judas and the Black Messiah, was perhaps best known to international audiences for an early episode of Charlie Brooker's anthology series Black Mirror, in the episode titled 15 Million Merits. That episode saw Kaluuya's character grapple with a dystopian future laced with inequalities, as well as a bleak outlook on the exploitation of the working class by those with the power to get away with it. So in a way, with The Kitchen, it seems that Kaluuya has come full circle, with something that often feels like something straight out of Brooker's Warped anthology, at times too much so, but has enough heart and humanity to feel like its own thing as well. In bringing the vastly overpopulated world of The Kitchen to life, Kaluuya, who also co-wrote the script with Joe Murtaugh, shows a keen eye for world building as he effortlessly weaves in and out of this dystopian landscape with impeccable ease. With the kitchen itself being an intriguing mix between the dreary, neon-drenched future of Blade Runner and the somewhat grotesque landscapes of Dread or Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall, with undertones of less obvious British sci-fi flicks like Brazil or even A Clockwork Orange, while the rest of this gentrified London is like stepping into an entirely different universe, one that is certainly slicker designed, but with very little of the charm or personality coming from the kitchen, which by comparison is popping with multicultural life at every available angle. Now, Kaluuya and Tavares giddily explore this strange world while tapping into the very real socio-economic issues lying underneath it, which are fairly obvious but nonetheless handled with a strong sense of morality that the directors flaunt at all times. Carrying this extensive world-building is a fairly standard story about two lost souls bonding with each other in a society that is always seeking to pull them apart. And while it is once again executed pretty well, this is where the kitchen feels a little less clever than its other qualities, because it's clear early on that there is a deeper connection between Kane Robinson's Izzy and Jediah Bannerman's troubled Benji than just simply being the stand-in father figure, which is all but confirmed much later in the film, well after the viewer has sussed out how exactly they may be further linked. And while both Kane 
Tane Robinson and Jediah Bannerman are likeable actors, injecting enough empathy into their respective parts to make them feel real and relatable in their emotional struggles. The script they're working from sticks rather closely to the set template that makes certain aspects of their individual arts a bit more predictable, to where by the time it begins to wrap things up, you hardly feel that these two characters have made a truly meaningful connection for it to end on the note that it does, because although they spend a number of scenes together, there's not been a whole lot of depth to their developing relationship outside of a number of the familiar beats that it doesn't fail to hit. Since the world building is quite ambitious, not to mention impressively realised by some subtle effects work, The Kitchen is a commendable filmmaking debut for both Kaluuya and Tavares, who show great potential in creating vast and interesting worlds for the glory of the silver screen, but from a storytelling aspect they need to take better chances with some of the more familiar strands, because while the execution is certainly solid, it doesn't quite take away the fact that most of what is shown here has been told in many other films like this, and the directors just need to find a story to match their practical ambitions, which otherwise earns three stars from me, which again equates to a decent stomach filler. So that brings us to the end of another delicious episode of Film Feeder. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's helping of movie deliciousness, and I hope you enjoy me next week where I do it all over again. Until then, please make sure you're following this podcast on whichever platform you may be listening to it on. Give us a follow on our many social media pages, the links and handles for which you can find in the episode description. And if you like my stuff and want to support me going forward, then go to patreon.com slash filmfeeder, where you can subscribe to one of my tiers and get some fantastic rewards, like 24-hour early access to podcast episodes, the ability to submit questions for an upcoming Q&A section on the show, and much more. And of course, please do visit the brand new Film Feeder website at www.filmfeeder.co.uk, where you can see all the hard work that my cousin Kevin has accomplished over the past year, and also to see regular written movie reviews and previews each and every week. As ever, I'm Jack Martin, your film chef extraordinaire, ready to whet your appetite for film every seven days. That's all for now, see you next time.